Okay, so this has nothing to do with the Surin, but I gotta tell you, this week we had one of those crazy kind of National Geographic kind of experiences. Bernadette and I had gone for a walk. We get back to our house. We're standing just a little ways apart, and all of a sudden these two birds go right in between us. One is a small bird. The other, thanks to Pastor Britt, who's a better birder than I am, was a Cooper's hawk. And the hawk took the little bird in between us which was awesome for the hawk, not so good for the little bird. Anyway, that was quite an experience to uh, have those two go right between us like that. Okay, we're not gonna talk about hawks today. Uh, we are gonna talk some more about the book of 1 John. And last week we started uh, working through 1 John. And as I told you, it's this letter that the Apostle John wrote to a fellowship of believers who apparently had recently been torn apart, uh, quite literally, by... Uh, what was apparently a very contentious church split led by some apparently influential teachers who had suggested that people could somehow separate their spiritual life from their physical life. And part of their justification for this, it seems, was that uh, they tried to separate the human Jesus from the spiritual Christ. And I talked to him about that last week. That may have come from a guy named Corinthus. We're not exactly sure. But there was this idea going around that, that Jesus and the Christ were kind of separate entities and that we too could somehow live our spiritual life separated from what was just going on in the, the meat and potatoes day-to-day -day life around us. And uh, what they really were teaching, I think, is that you could lead a bifurcated life. Now, how many of you know that term, bifurcated? I really didn't know that term until I started selling physical therapy equipment years ago. And physical therapists will oftentimes use muscle stimulators, electric muscle stimulators, and they get bifurcated cables. It's one cable, but it's actually got two wires and they split, one plugs in the positive, one in the negative, and then likewise two different pads go on the patient. Um, and so it's called a bifurcated cable. It's, it looks like one thing, but it's really going two directions. And that appears to be what these guys were suggesting, that you could lead this sort of bifurcated life. One part of you pursuing godliness, one of you pursuing earthliness, if you will. And as I was thinking about it, it, it brought to mind a commercial that I saw years ago. It was actually a Volvo commercial. Maybe you remember this. and they did it in one take. Yeah, I guess so. I can't believe they filmed that going down the freeway. Well, you know, we may admire what a highly trained athlete like uh, Claude Van Damme could accomplish in, in a stunt like that, but you realize that that only goes so far. You know, th those trucks could only move so far apart before he was going to have to make a pretty important decision. Uh, no matter how flexible you are, you can't just keep straddling the middle. And, and when it comes to our life in Christ, 
the Apostle John would say, you can't do that. You can't lead a bifurcated life. So let's start by just reading 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. If it will come up on the screen. There it is. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I mentioned last week that I'm going to look at this letter of 1 John uh, thematically rather than consecutively. Um, As you read this little letter, you realize that rather than just a straight-line argument, uh, John is passionately circling around several key themes uh, designed to counter these false teachers. And I gave you some homework. The assignment was that you would read through the book of 1 John, only takes about 10 minutes, that you do that once a week, and as you do, look for some of the themes that I'm going to introduce you to on, on these Sunday mornings. Um, And I would suggest that this week, you try reading it from a different translation. In fact, I'm going to suggest that if you don't already have it, you try reading it from the New Living Translation. And if you don't have one, let me just show you a great resource. This is called BibleHub.com. And uh, BibleHub.com has lots of great resources. It has multiple translations of the Bible. And so it's a good thing just to be aware of for your personal Bible study. The, uh, the theme that I want us to think about this morning and that I want you to look for this week is this idea of walking in the light. And, and I want you to look through 1 John and see how John talks about this idea of our walk and walking in the light. John says that there are two concepts that are just joined at the hip. Uh, there is our fellowship with God and there is our our walk in the world. And and he talks about walking in darkness versus walking in the light. Um, He says that if I claim to follow Jesus, that where I choose to walk needs to align with what I say I believe. Uh, While we were traveling in in Italy uh, and Greece, Burnett and I took several tours And the tour guides now have these cool little things. You get a little uh, pack that you carry, kind of like a little walkie-talkie, and then it's got an earpiece. And the guide has got the microphone so everybody can hear him, uh, which was nice if you get separated. What was awkward is sometimes they would stop and they would give us a chance to go and use the restroom, but they wanted you to keep the earpiece in. It's just an odd experience being in the restroom as the guide continues to talk to you. But... um, There were two things that were important about those tours. The first was you wanted to keep your eye on the guide and follow him. And second, you wanted to keep listening to the voice in your ear because it would tell you where to go. 
if you got too far away from the guide, then you're going to be out of range of their voice. And at that point, you are no longer on a guided tour. You are just a lost tourist. And John says that if we claim to be following Jesus, the evidence will be that we are staying close to him and that we are listening to his voice. Now, if you were to do a study, and they've been done even recently, you would find that there are still a majority of Americans who would claim that they are Christians. I think the last uh, statistic I saw said that something like 60% of Americans still say that they are Christians. But I don't think you need to be a real careful student of sociology to recognize that our culture doesn't seem, on the whole, to look like a Jesus-led tour. And so what does it mean to have fellowship with God? Really, what does it mean really to walk in his light? And what hope is there for people like us who really do mean it when we say that we are his followers, and yet we so often find ourselves walking out of step? So we're gonna to talk to him about this concept of walking. What is that all about? I think what John is talking about, when he talks about our walk, is this sustained, persistently chosen trajectory of our lives. There is wandering, and then there is walking. Wanderers are people that are unfocused, they are distracted, they may have a goal, but they aren't keeping it front and center when they choose their path. Walkers, on the other hand, I think have a destination in mind and they are going for it. They are making steady progress toward whatever it is they've set their eye on as the goal. Here's what John says a little bit later, chapter 3, verse 9 in this letter. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, verses like this oftentimes cause people a lot of confusion. They say, well, it doesn't say right there that if, if I really am, am in Christ, that I cannot keep on singing, sinning. And I don't know about you, but I sinned once or twice this last week. I, it doesn't appear that I have lost the ability. And so what's he talking about? Well, I think it's this idea of the walk. It's, it's the practice of life. It's the established, sustained pattern that we live in. Uh, I remember reading years ago about an architect who, when they built the building, they wanted to pour the sidewalks. And he said, no, no, he says, just wait. Don't pour the sidewalks yet. Wait for a bit. And what he did was he waited until the building had been open for two or three months. And he said, okay, now pour the sidewalks where the pathways are. People showed pretty quickly where they were walking. And, and that's where you're going to put the sidewalk. It doesn't matter where you say people should be walking. What matters is where are they actually walking? Now, I think that's the idea here. It's not that we don't all slip off the sidewalk. We don't all stumble. We don't wander sometimes. But it's this idea of a person whose established path of life demonstrates that they are not pursuing Christ. It says you can't say that you are pursuing Christ, that you're walking on that sidewalk, if in fact... All the worn ruts we find in your life are going a different direction. So I guess that's the question is, uh, where would the sidewalks be poured in your life? Not where would you like them poured, but where are the paths actually? 
The problem John was addressing was this idea that had been suggested by some of these false teachers that you could live like Claude Van Damme, that you could do both things at once, keep one foot solidly placed on one path and another one solidly placed on a totally different path. And, and John says that is not sustainable. You cannot live a bifurcated life. Now, every Christian I know wanders. We get distracted by shiny things. We pick a course that is based on our gut rather than the compass, and then we find ourselves often at dead ends. And John knows that, and he's quick to qualify his black and white statement about light versus darkness uh, with this. We read this in verse 9, chapter 1. If we confess our sins, right? So obviously John doesn't think that a true follower of Jesus doesn't ever sin because he says, listen, when you do, confess it. And when you confess it, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are a follower of Christ and you wander off the path, there is grace. What put us on Jesus' path wasn't our good choices. It was his grace to begin with. It was Jesus who gave himself, who bled for us to save us from people, from lives like ours that were literally hell-bent on going our own way. And I think a lot of us would say that when we surrendered to him, it was like the blinders came off. It was his experience, like I'd been walking in darkness and suddenly Jesus and the way of Jesus became beautiful to us. We wanted him. We wanted to follow him. But that doesn't mean there aren't still things that distract us or old ruts that we slip back into. And when it happens, John says the way back is the same way we started. God is faithful and just. He will forgive and he will cleanse. And I think the wording is significant. He says that he is faithful and he's just. I was listening to a lecture by Timothy Keller, and he points out that it doesn't say God is faithful and merciful to forgive. God certainly is merciful. That's not to discount that. But I think when, when I think about coming back to God because I have messed up again, and, and I'm counting the fact that he's faithful, but I can think, well, God is faithful, but he's just going to be merciful to me. It's like he's going to look at me and say, okay, well, one more time, Tim. I cannot believe that you did that again, but okay, one more time. And I'm sure that God at times may toy with that emotion with me. But he says, when God forgives, he is faithful. I can count on what he's going to do, but he's also just. Because the penalty for my sin, and the penalty is severe, has been paid by his son. In fact, John talks about Jesus as being our advocate with the Father. It's like, it's like Jesus sitting next to his Father and saying, Father, remember, I paid for that. You're not just closing your eyes and hoping Tim doesn't do it again. I've paid for that. And it's not like God is going, the Father is saying, oh, shoot, that's right, you did, right? Because who sent the Son? It was the Father that sent the Son. It was the expression of the Father's heart to provide a way for us to be in relationship with Him. So He says, when we sin, 
we come back and he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins. So what about this idea of walking in darkness? Darkness in scripture usually is a bad thing. In fact, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and here's how the account of creation begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That uh, Hebrew term there for the earth being without form and void, I always remember it from my Hebrew class long ago. One of the few things I remember from Hebrew class was that that term in Hebrew is tohu wabohu. That's just a great term, right? Tohu wabohu, formless and void. He says darkness was covering the deep. To, to ancient peoples, the deep was this place of fear and mystery. And that idea of darkness speaks to this state of disorientation and lostness, that everything is tohu wabohu. And the very first creative act that is recorded is this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And you'll note that it doesn't say that God ever declared the darkness good. What was good was the light. And right from the start, God draws this sharp line between the light and the dark. The darkness is usually pictured as the domain of wickedness. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Or in John's Gospel, John 3.19, this from the New Living Translation God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. To walk in darkness is to once again set foot in the sphere of tohu wabohu. If you think about the creation story from a, a naturalistic viewpoint, which we are often told is that the world began in darkness and then by some fluke, of mindless matter that came from who knows where, everything suddenly just appeared and by blind chance eventually became everything that we perceive as being well-designed, but really it's just an illusion and that any sense of purpose is just an illusion. And in the end, everything will collapse back into the cold, pitiless vacuum of space. And if that really is the ultimate reality what is it like to live in a dark world like that? Well, I would suggest to you that if that really is the way it is, then we live perpetually in a state of tohu wabohu. There is no purpose. There is no form really to anything. It's just an illusion. And that means that if I really believe that, I get to be my own God. I can make up the rules any way I want to. There's no rules to begin with. So I can shape it however I'd like it to be. Becky Pippard, in one of her books, quoted a Brazilian psychiatrist, Noberto Kepe. And, and here's how he described the basic human disorder. He called it the disease of theomania, the desire to be God, the desire to be the playwright instead of the actor in the drama. And that's appealing to us, isn't it? I would love to be God make up the rules, set my own direction. 
And yet the scripture would say that if, if that's what I want to be, I'm going to find that I'm not God and that I'm going to live in a perpetual state of tohu wabohu. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15. John says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. The class that I took on 1 John this summer, the professor asked us if we could come up with our own definition for what this concept that John is talking about as the world is. What, what is the world? Now, there's one kind of use where we just talk about the world, the physical place that we live, but John's talking about something else. It's something spiritual, something philosophical, something deep in the sociology of human beings. And, and so he said, what is that? And and here's the term that I came up with. It's the mutinous kingdom of self. It's the me that says, I don't want God to be captain of my world. I want to be captain of my world. And so I stage this mutiny. And, and the world all around me is in on the mutiny. We're all eager for the things that we can crave physically and the things that we can see and the pride in our achievements. And the world says that is going to give your world shape and substance and purpose. It's the mutinous kingdom of self. Do you ever wonder why our world seems so confused? It's because our world walks in darkness, which is not a popular thing to say but I think it's hard to deny if you take a really honest, fair look at our world. There's a new play. Uh, I think it's happening in La Jolla, California. Uh, it's, it's titled, Here There Are Blueberries. And it was inspired by an old photo album that was found. And the photo album showed family and friend vacation pictures from the guards at Auschwitz. People out just enjoying a nice day like all of us. And one of the pictures had written on it, here there are blueberries. One of the historians involved noted this. These people in the album look normal. They do not look evil. They're smiling. They're playing with their dogs. They look like they might resemble a neighbor that you have. And yes, that is correct, that humans have this capacity. Regular folks, just like you and me, fully capable of walking in extreme darkness and picking blueberries along the way. Timothy Keller, again, pointed me to a quote from a book by C.E.M. Joad. This was written back in the 1950s. I went ahead and read the book. Uh, Joad was a British philosopher. Much of his life, he had embraced socialism, and he stridently opposed the Christian faith that he had been raised in. But late in life, he returned to faith, and he wrote a book titled The Recovery of Belief. Here's something he says. It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, 
by the subservience of intellect to emotion, by the failure of true socialism to arrive, by the behavior of nations and politicians, by the recurrent fact of war. So we couldn't figure it out. What is it that keeps drawing us back into this state of disorder and confusion? And John would say, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's because we walk in darkness. That's where our world is at. Back in the 70s, maybe you remember the hit, You Light Up My Life. And it depicts this woman who is lonely for love, and finally she meets a guy that seems to fulfill all of her dreams. And she's so ecstatic. And right at the end, the final stanza says this. It can't be wrong when it feels so right, because you, you light up my life. I can only assume that there is something about this relationship that people might have looked at and said, that's not really right. You know, uh, that guy actually has a wife, or whatever it was. She says, yeah, but it, it just feels right. So how could it be wrong? That is a life lived in darkness. That is a life where you feel your way around, and if this feels right, it must be right. And John would say that if our ultimate guide in life is our feelings, then we are going to walk in darkness. And so in the mutinous kingdom of self, chaos reigns. People pick blueberries and commit atrocities, supposedly to perfect a super race. Learned philosophers espouse great political theories, but then find that their grand schemes are constantly decaying into disorder. People yearning for love do all the things that feel right, and yet their relationships far too often unravel. And why? Why is it even when our cravings have been pampered, there is still a hunger for more? Why is it when everything that a person could want has been obtained, do people feel like something is still missing? Why is it even when people have a buffed and puffed their resumes to perfection, they still feel that they're inadequate and they have something to prove? John would say it's because people groping to find true meaning without the true meaning giver are people walking in darkness. But we all know that those old siren calls, the old lust, the new toys, the more bragging rights, they still can tug at us because the world surrounds us. And it surrounds us with the temptation to jump ship and rejoin the mutiny. And some people, it would appear, that John was writing to, had been told that you can actually ride both ships at once. You can put a foot on both, and you'll be OK. So how do we spot areas where we may be trying to keep a foot on two boats, where, where we may be trying to live a bifurcated life? I think one of the clues is if you have an area of life where you find yourself saying something like, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian, but this is just the way business is done. I'm a Christian, but politics is messy business. I'm a Christian, but you know, boys will be boys. I'm a Christian, but it is girls' night out. I'm a Christian, but I think I deserve this. I'm a Christian, but if we can make this a cash deal, I can save you some money. I'm a Christian, but I, I'm, I've, I'm in this boat, 
but I'm also in this boat. I had a friend recently say to me, he didn't use the word but, but it was hiding in there. He was talking about something where he had uh, been resisting uh, something, and he says, I'm not a rebel. I just didn't want to do it. I'm not a rebel, because that wouldn't be like Jesus, but I just didn't want to do it. John doesn't say that if we walk in the light, we will necessarily have a more successful life, at least not the kind of success our culture might recognize as such. Here's what he says will happen if we walk in the light. He says if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. Now, you see, I'd like to say, okay, you're going to tell me that I should not walk over here, that that's going to lead to tohu wabohu, but if I walk over here, I'm going to get more stuff, right? This is going to make me look better. It's, it's, this is going to get me more than walking over there, and John doesn't even suggest that. It's like, no, you may, you may lose some stuff. But what you will have if you walk in the light is you will have fellowship. You'll have a different quality of relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. My inclination when I recommend a different path to someone would be to describe all the personal benefits that it's going to bring, right? Better health and more success and greater blessings. And yet John skips past that and says the real benefit is better fellowship, which is a term that we too easily equate with donuts and coffee. That is not the core of fellowship. Think again about the creation story. First, God creates light and sets boundaries, and then he creates Adam. But he says that Adam on his own isn't good, so he creates Eve. And they're both naked. In other words, they're in the light, and they can fully see and know each other. And then darkness enters the garden. The serpent suggests that they don't need to honor God's boundaries. They, they can be like God themselves. They can make up their own minds. And what happens? Well, it says they suddenly discover that they're naked. This other person can, can see me in ways that I don't want to be seen. They know things about me I don't want them to know. And, and they begin to hide. They begin to recede from open relationship and, and into darkness. See, walking in light changes the nature of my relationships. I move from being self-serving to other-serving. We've all seen the bumper sticker, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. And, and that's, that's a world perspective. It says, what matters is not how I serve you. What matters is what I get for me. Think about Jesus, the final night before his crucifixion. And you remember the interactions that some of his close followers had had, right? The guys who said they were following Jesus. Uh, they asked him things like, uh, hey, Jesus, when you come into power, because you know that's what you're here for, right? You're going to set up this, this kingdom, this political powerhouse. And when you come into power, can I be your right-hand man? Can, can I rise above these other guys here? Because they're kind of losers, and I'm really the guy you're going to need for that job, right? The boastful pride of life. They were going for power, for privilege, for achievement, for one-upmanship. And then what did Jesus do when they get to that last meal together? He gets down on his knees, and he starts washing their feet. 
and they are stunned because nothing in their world told them that this is how you get ahead in the game. Being on the floor, doing the dirty job, that's not what it means to be a great leader. Great leaders have power. Great leaders have prestige. Great leaders have lots of toys. Great leaders don't wrap themselves in towels and wash dirty feet. And yet Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want to know the kind of fellowship I'm talking about, I'm telling you it begins here. It begins in service. In fact, he said, leadership among you is not to look like leadership out there. It is to have a different quality to it. He said, if you're going to live in the glow of my example, you need to quit looking for the next rung to climb and start looking for the next foot to wash. So, do any of us do that perfectly? I certainly don't. I was thinking this morning about that hymn, Come Thou Fount. There's one phrase that, that comes back to me often. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I get so easily distracted. I so easily look at the next run and think, man, it'd be nice to get one up here. And Lord says, Tim, are you looking for the next foot to wash? Because that's where real fellowship is in my kingdom. Jesus knows that I am prone to wander. And so John is quick to point out that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. The Christian life is full of grace when we fail. But the goal of the Christian life is not to master the yo-yo of failure and forgiveness. I don't know, maybe some of you, like me, I remember back when yo-yos were the thing. And we all wanted to learn all the yo-yo tricks, right? But, but the Christian life, the goal isn't to become a yo-yo master, right? I'm up, I'm down, I'm up, I'm down. The goal of being a Christ follower is to seek to follow him consistently, to abide in him, to stay in his ways. Another way we could talk about this would be uh, to use the language of an orbit. That wouldn't have made much sense to the people of John's day, but I think it can make sense to us. Objects in space fall into orbits around larger bodies that by their gravitational force draw them in and hold them. And every orbiting body is orbiting around some center of gravity. And John is saying you can't orbit around two centers of gravity. Right? Something's going to draw you in. Something's going to hold your attention. The beautiful thing is that Christ grants us the power to break free of our own sad little self-orbits and to orbit around something greater. You've been tracking the progress of the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, fabulous, fantastic piece of engineering. But if you've been following it, you'll know they've positioned it at a certain point in space where it is caught between the gravitational pull of the Earth and the Sun. So it just is kind of hovering out there. It's a very unique spot it's sitting in. But John would say that may work for the James Webb Telescope, but you can't do that. You can't lead this bifurcated life. You can't hover between the two. You have to decide who you're going to follow. You can't live with, I'm a Christian, but. Maybe you'd say, well, I'm not orbiting around myself. I'm all about my kids. I'm all about my spouse. I'm all about my job. And could I just say that those are bad orbits as well? 
You can't make someone, some person or some career the center of your life. You'll be out of orbit with the true center of the universe. The very last line of John's message to this church comes in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I love how the New Living Translation translates it. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And it's way too easy for us to take good things and yet put them in the place where only God belongs. So how do we become people who walk in the light? Well, I suggest that the first step is we have to stop hiding. You have to take an honest look at some of the places where you may be leading a bifurcated life. Where do you feel the tension? And if you really are a follower of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is residing in you, and if you are trying to lead a bifurcated life, you're going to feel tension. Where are those tension points? Maybe it's hard to use a word like sin about yourself. Or maybe it's all too easy and it's crushing for you to think about the fact that you still mess up. But, but John says if we try to deny it, we're only kidding ourselves. And probably there aren't many of us who can't in our heart of hearts utter a personal yes when it comes to sin. We know our failures. And maybe darkness is a good descriptor for how you feel inside. It's not just you think you're orbiting around the wrong things, it feels more like you're lost in space. Your inner world is tohu wabohu. And the gospel message is that none of us can get into God's orbit on our own. The journey with Christ, the journey into light, begins and continues in the same way. We confess our failures, we ask for grace, and the really good news is that if we ask, he gives it. And maybe for you today, you need to take that first step of that first surrender. Maybe you've never opened your life to Jesus Christ. But you'd say, Tim, tohu wabohu describes what I feel like inside all the time. And I would just say that Jesus came to seek and save and restore people like us that get lost in the dark. The beginning point is simply to admit, Lord, I think I'm lost. I think I'm one of those hearts that's in the dark. And if you're willing to turn your heart over to him, he will change your orbit. Maybe you're one of those that loves Jesus, but failure has dogged your steps. You're pretty sure when God sees you coming that he's shaking his head. He's like, oh boy, here they come again. What'd they do this time? But John's words about walking in darkness aren't meant to send a shudder down us like maybe we never will get out of this. Or maybe like Adam and Eve in the garden, we just want to hide in the bushes. John is clear that the only person who really has a problem is the one who denies they have a problem. In fact, I would suggest that a sensitive conscience itself is proof that you are God's child. You love his light. You want to walk in it. You know you need grace. And if that's you, then I think that God, John, God himself, will put an arm around you, give you a squeeze and say, stop fretting. You are secure in his love. You keep coming. He is faithful and he's just to forgive. 
Pete Gregg, in a book he wrote, has a phrase I love. He says, there is more grace in God than sin in you. So step one is to stop hiding. Step two is to turn on the light. We do that by, I think, meditating on God's word. Sometimes that means we get good counsel from a mature Christian who themselves has spent time in God's word. Um, I I love the the flashlight idea, right? He says, walk in the light. Uh, Flashlights are meant to guide where you're walking. They're not just supposed to blind people, right? Some of us like to blind people, just, you know, make them feel bad. Or we, we love to do this thing where we kind of set this up on a Sunday. We come and blind ourselves and go, wow, that is, that is bright. That's amazing. And then we kind of set it down here and we walk away the rest of the week. And we kind of come back on Sunday, right? Come back, look at it and go, man, whoa, that is bright. John says that's not what it's about. We're not supposed to just admire it. We're not supposed to try to irritate other people with it. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to walk in it. It may show me some stuff about myself. It may make me change direction. He says, walk in the light. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that's the other thing. Once we have been in God's word, once we've sought good counsel, then we need to walk. We need to act on the light that we're given. John doesn't say believe in the light. That's good. Right? If you don't believe in the light, you're not going to walk in it. But that's not enough. He says you've got to walk in the light. Over and over, John makes this point that genuine faith demands genuine action. Here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Ouch. It's a little abrupt, John. So I'm just telling you, if you really love Jesus, if you're really going to follow him, it's going to change the way you live. And if it hasn't changed anything about the way you live, you've got to ask yourself, what do I really believe? What am I really orbiting around? I remember one time losing the, uh, I think it was the alternator in my car, and the result was every time I turned my headlo- headlights on, it was at night, I turned my headlights on, the engine would start to die. But if I turned the headlights off, it would sputter to life again. That is a terrifying way to drive down a mountain road to keep turning the lights off. I'd flip them on, the road was going that way, and I was going this way, right? But that's how some of us live our lives, right? We kind of show up on Sunday, get a quick burst of light, go, that's good, and we flip it back off, and then wonder why next week we seem so far off the trail. John says, no, you walk in the light, and you act on it. When we consciously choose to live in his light, when we willingly submit and repent of living bifurcated lives, orbiting around things that we've put in place of God, John says we draw ourselves into an orbit of rich relationship, not only with God, but with others as well, with real fellowship. And I would say that the world around us desperately needs to see what it looks like to be truly loved. I was listening to some young adults recently being interviewed, and it was just heartbreaking to hear how many of these young adults Some of them looked very successful, but they began to share about just the crushing lostness of their lives. Broken families, broken dreams, mental anxiety, and so many of them, what they were desperate to find was someone who would truly love them. N.T. Wright says that those who are grasped by grace in the gospel and who bear witness to that are not merely beneficiaries, 
recipients of God's mercy, they are also agents. They are poems in which God is addressing his world. The world desperately needs to hear the poem of Jesus. And they hear that best through our lives. To live like that is to walk in light. John says, no bifurcation. Walk in the light. Let's pray. Father, I think of the hymn again, Come Thou Fount. O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen.